Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of your presence with us this day, for the assurance of grace and forgiveness of sins we have in Christ and the gospel, and for the blessing of your Holy Spirit coming to us now by your word. May you seal your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Today we continue in our sermon series in Matthew's Gospel, turning to Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16, looking at one of the very unique parables of the New Testament. Hear now the word of God. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You go into the vineyard, too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friends, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word remains forever. How do we view the world? That's the question I want us to think about today. Kevin DeYoung, taking a cue from John Calvin, says there's a couple of different lenses we can wear. One are those goggles of fairness. What does that mean? Well, kids, it's not fair. My brother got the dinosaur in the Happy Meal, and I got this lame doll. Ugh. Not fair. Teenagers, it's not fair that he made the traveling basketball team or that she sits first chair in the orchestra. Adults, it's not fair that my boss is like this when his boss is like that or my house is like this when her house is like that. Now, there are real wickednesses and evils in the world. 
and much suffering. That's not what this parable is talking about. When it talks of the fairness goggles, think of goggles that are really foggy. Have you ever gone downhill skiing with foggy goggles? Not good. They're filled with the fog of what? Self and the fear of man. Always thinking about how I'm being perceived by others. Thinking about what I deserve. Thinking about what others have done to disrespect me or ignore me or a chip on my shoulder, a pity party. Those are the fairness goggles. I deserve so much better. But looking through the world with the lens of the Bible and the glasses of God's grace changes how we view the news and everyday circumstances that we're in. When we wear the glasses of grace on good days and hard days, God gives us grace to trust in Jesus, to rest in Jesus, to know that life is a gift of God to us, and to know the joy that comes from knowing God's love and superabounding grace to us in Jesus. That's what this parable is about. Not so much about the workers, although there's an application there, but primarily about the master and his generous goodness and grace. First, let's look at this parable. Jesus is speaking to the 12 disciples. He's been talking about discipleship. One who walks with the Lord, who knows the Lord, who loves the Lord. Just a little bit earlier, we had met the rich young ruler who thought he was doing all that God commanded and who basically told Jesus, I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. Meatloaf, anybody? He wouldn't do that. He walked away from Christ. In light of that, what does Jesus hear Peter say? Well, Peter says, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. Look what we've done for you. Don't you owe us something? And then Jesus uses words that bookend this parable. Many of the first will be last, and the last first. What's he talking about? Do you see that phrase in verse 1, the kingdom of heaven? That's, in many ways, a theme running throughout Matthew's gospel. I reference an article there by S.M. Baugh, if you want to read more on this. Because this sets up, really, how we understand the church, the new creation, and the kingdom. Boss says this, what is the kingdom of heaven? He answers it so simply, just like the Westminster Confession does. It is the new creation of the new heavens and new earth. That's what it is when Christ will be all in all. The kingdom of glory. The inheritance that awaits us. It is the new world that Jesus mentioned in Matthew 19, 28 when our bodies will be glorified and made like Christ's glorified body. It is already, and not yet, for us. Already in the sense of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ tells us Christ reigns. He is king. The church is the colony or the embassy of heaven on earth. The church has the keys to the kingdom. We saw that a little bit ago in Matthew 16. The church, you, God's people, we are pilgrims. We are sojourners. This world is not our home. That's why this matters so much. We are called to encourage each other, to walk by faith together as those who are a new creation in Christ. As we receive the food of the kingdom, the word, law and gospel, the sacrament, 
the assurance of God's favor and grace and love to us. As we forgive each other in Christ, as we've been forgiven, this matters a lot. That's what this parable is about. Life as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Don't you love parables? Maybe you scratch your head because a parable is not to be interpreted allegorically, not randomly. And it has a main point, but it throws us a bit. Let's see what this one does. The master goes out early in the morning. So, 6 a.m. It's the heat of the summer. It's harvest time. That means there's a certain period of time when the grapes have to be picked so the wine will not be spoiled. And you've got all these people out there looking for jobs, ready to work. The master goes, and knowing a timeliness is in in going on here, he says, okay, I'm going to pay you to come right now a denarius a day. That's a common wage for a worker for one day. They're sent out to work. Three hours later, 9 a.m., some more people are idly standing by. That word idle is used here a few times. He says, go work. Whatever is just, I will pay you for the wage. They went. Now the sixth hour, it's noon. And the ninth hour, 3 p.m., the same thing. Workers, come and help me out. Now the 11th hour, so 5 p.m., near the end of a long day, which would be 6 p.m., a 12-hour day. Some of you working in the heat of the summer know what this is like outside. These guys come and work as well. They say no one's hired us. Maybe they're looking for a job to be able to pay their family. They've been waiting there all day. You two go and work. The day is done. The whistle blows. Time to pay. And there are surprising things that happen here. Parables are intended to make you think, I didn't realize God was like this. My thinking was all wrong here. Those who came last are to be paid first. That's unusual. Jesus remembers teaching us something about the way the kingdom of heaven works. Different from the way the world works. Totally different, actually. So they get one denarius for one hour. $100 an hour or so. Those people who started at 6 a.m. think, whoa, if they got one, we're going to get what? Twelve. We can take the next week or ten days off. We're set. Look at this. But here's the second surprising thing. They all got paid the same. You're scratching your head. Those guys then that started at 5 p.m. and worked one hour got $100 for an hour? And the guys that started at 9 a.m. and then at noon, and they're all getting the same? Ferguson tells us this is intentionally supposed to be funny. Maybe you don't see that. Maybe they didn't see that. Like, you're supposed to chuckle. Like, Really? Come on here. You've got to be kidding me. No way. That's the intention of this parable. Jesus has a sense of humor. He wants us to kind of be startled. The group that started first said, whoa, we 
do not think this is fair. They grumbled, much like Israel grumbled in the wilderness. What kind of master is this? As you and I are reading this, we naturally side with those that started earlier, don't we? That's not fair. This isn't the way things should be. The prodigal son. Why didn't the older son, who's been so diligent, why didn't he get a calf? Why did you give it to this slacker? When I was in college, I worked landscaping for a few summers. Moving boulders, laying sod. Do you know the first thing they told me on day one when I showed up? Green side up. I love those guys. You got to lay the sod green side up. That's all I said. Get to work. Can you imagine if you're there working all day and then someone shows up for the last half hour and they get paid the same? You think, no way, unjust. How does the master end the parable? Friend, see his grace. Did you not agree to this? I'm not doing you any wrong. I'm giving you what I said I would give you. Am I not allowed to choose to give what I want? Or do you begrudge my generosity? There's no reply. The master has rightly judged the grumbling hearts of the workers. Now, how do we interpret this? Some say this is referring to Israel, who started early in the day, way back in the days of Exodus, and the Gentiles, these Johnny-come-latelys, are kind of coming at the end of things, and they're getting the same grace, and there's grumbling there. There could be something to that. But I think first and foremost, this is teaching us, as Ferguson, I think, rightly says, about God. What is God like? The master represents the heavenly father. The denarius, the wage, represents eternal life. Not that we earn it, it's a parable. But that God gives it. Graciously. Generously. Some say, well, maybe those first workers were just slackers. And the last workers actually worked as hard as the first workers, or harder than them, and did as much in one hour as they did in 12. No, that misses the point. It's not about a math equation. It's about the kingdom of heaven that is not like this world at all. Secondly, what does this mean? It's a test. What do we really think of God? Verse 13. Didn't you agree to this? Verse 15. I can choose to do as I please with what belongs to me. We learn here about the sovereign pleasure and goodness of the Lord. It is he who hires the workers, he who determines their pay, he who gives generously. It reminds us in our own hearts, we try to control things. By nature, we say, my kingdom come, my will be done. But God is reminding us here, he is sovereign and he is good. His kingdom come. His will be done. He's reminding us of the sin of trying to be control freaks and obsessing over everything in our life and trying to make it just so rather than submitting to Christ as king, to his sovereign goodness and saving grace. We learn as well about his generosity. Do you remember the lie of Satan in the Garden of Eden? Genesis 3. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's the lie. 
This is from Ferguson a few months back on his podcast. Satan wants you to think and me to think God's restrictive. He doesn't love you. He's not good and he's not generous. He's mean. He's the kind of dad that takes his child to a toy store and says, look at all the toys. You get none of them. Ha ha ha. That's Satan's goal. He wants you and me to hate God. He hates God. He wants you to be suspicious of God. God doesn't care for you. If this was happening to you in a different way, and if this wasn't happening to you this way, then that would show God loves you, but he doesn't love you. Your circumstance shows you that God doesn't love you. He wouldn't love you and let that happen. God is frugal. God is cheap. God is like Ebenezer Scrooge. That's Satan's lie. He wants all of your joy to be sucked out. No pleasure, no love. Jesus is reminding us of the danger of a spiritual quid pro quo view of God, one man says. Meaning, a favor for a favor. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. God, if I do this for you, you'll do that for me, right? And if you do this first, then I'll do that. That's the natural inclination of our hearts. Being suspicious of God. The only ground of the complaint that these first workers have against God is what? How do you fill in the blank? What's the ground? He is way too generous. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A God of love, selfless, communicative, personal, abundantly generous. What is God like? As Reeves says, we're learning this in our study as men, and also our Ligonier study. God is like Jesus Christ, fundamentally outgoing, outshining, and self-giving. He wants to be known by you, to be with you, to be possessed by you, so that you call him your father. What is God like? Abundant in mercy, Exodus 34. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands. What is God like? He forgives your sins and removes them as far as the east is from the west. He casts them into the depths of the sea. Abundantly generous. Do you see that verse 15? His generosity is seen in two ways, really. First of all, we don't get what we deserve. What do we deserve? Children, what does every sin deserve? The wrath and curse of God. Mercy. Not getting the hell we deserve. Grace, getting what we don't deserve in Jesus. Love, forgiveness, righteousness, eternal life and salvation, all for the sake of Christ. God gives that to us bankrupt, helpless sinners. Guilty, shameful sinners. It's all by God's grace. Grace is not a substance. Grace is the demerited favor of God to us in Jesus. Not of our merit, not of our deserving, not of our cooperation. Ephesians 1 is a great place to see this. In Christ we were chosen. In Christ and in love we were predestined. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The trespasses are taken by Christ on himself for us. In Christ, we have an inheritance. 
It is all Christ. We must never think of God's grace apart from Christ. What he accomplished, the redemption he accomplished, his life, death, and resurrection, it is finished. That is applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. If we think of God as a God who's wanting just to bash you for your sin and expose your sin and ridicule you for your sin, you will be short-sighted, and I will as well. We will lose sight of his grace from beginning to end. The abundant grace of God. This means we need an alien righteousness to be saved. Generosity means we don't deserve it, and it comes from outside of us. Kids, when your mom and dad are generous to you, it's not something you deserve, right? From outside of you, it's given to you. So it is with the righteousness of Christ. We need an alien righteousness to be saved. Romans 1. We don't have it. Luther said he tried to beat himself up. He tried to perform more. Those are those goggles of fairness. If I do that, God will reward this. Luther was filled with doubt and hopelessness until he saw by the Spirit of God that the righteousness God commands, he provides. Freely, generously, in Christ. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, receiving with an empty hand the righteousness of Jesus. My sin reckoned to Christ. His righteousness reckoned, imputed to me. What do I bring? I bring my sin. What does God give? Abundant grace. What motivates God to do this? So, Again, what's the parable about? Thinking of our Heavenly Father. Is he motivated because he sees how hardworking you'll be? How good you'll be? How faithful you'll be? How obedient you'll be? How law-keeping you'll be? Is that what motivates God? No, that's the false gospel of the devil. Deuteronomy 7. The Lord has chosen you, Israel, to be his treasured possession out of all the peoples, not because you're more numerous. The Lord set his love on you and chose you as the fewest of the peoples because the Lord loves you. Brothers and sisters, God loves you because he loves you. There's no way to go or where to go beyond that. It's who he is. There's nothing in you that can invoke the love of God. So as you trust in Christ, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Abundant generosity isn't taken away. We love him because he first loved us. This leads to the assurance of your salvation in Jesus The glasses of it's not fair come off. The glasses of I got to try harder to earn God's favor, no more. The spectacles of the word of God, the Lord is better to me than I deserve. As Rod Rosenblatt said, Christ died for the sins of Christians too. The gospel is for Christians as well. The gospel is those who, for those who have been 
broken by the church, Rosenblatt says, meaning by moralistic preaching, which has all the focus on self and performance and nothing on God, the grace of God, and the gospel of Jesus. The gospel is for the Christian struggling with this sin that in Christian circles is kind of assumed is okay. And this sin that Christians say, no way. If you struggle with that, you're out. The gospel is for both. Both have the same blood of Christ. Both have the cleansing that comes from the blood of Christ. Both have the power of the cross of Christ. Both have the righteousness of Christ. The gospel is for the new Christian and the Christian that has served God for decades. Same gospel. Same grace. The gospel is for the one who grew up in a Christian home and for the one who came from a life of sexual immorality and drugs. A life of the most wicked and vile of outward sins possible. The gospel is for the sins of our hearts that we don't want anyone to know about, that we are ashamed of. God says, bring them to Jesus. Find cleansing in Jesus. Find new life in Jesus. Find grace to forgive your sins in Jesus. Abundant generosity. These are implications from our union with Christ. Romans 6. When Christ died, we died. When Christ rose, we rose. You have died to the reign of sin, Christian. Your assurance is not self-confidence. It is confidence in your Father. It is trust in your Savior. It is joy in the spirit of sonship. This leads us to praise and marvel. When you look at the abundant grace of God, by the Spirit of God, it can't leave us just kind of stale. And when it does, we say, God, help me, I'm struggling, I'm stale. Let me see again who you are. Awe, wonder, marvel, amazement. When we bask in the sun of this generous God, Reeve says, we are the happiest Christians. We have something good to tell someone else. We know ourselves loved in Christ, and we love God and want to tell others of this God and shine forth Emmaus Road with that gospel promise. It leads to humility. When we believe in the generosity of God, it leads to trust in the Lord, remembering what do we have that we didn't receive? From our clothes, to our food, to our home, to our spouse, to our children, to worship on the Lord's day, to our church family, God has been abundantly kind to us, Emmaus Road. Deuteronomy 8 tells you, don't forget this. By nature, we're tending to forget and grumble and say, I earned this. God owes me. Look at all I've done for God. Give me some more, God. This circumstance shouldn't be happening if I've done this much obedience, God. If I've served you this way, God. Beloved, God has been so kind. Looking at life through the glasses of God's grace means... God, give me the gracious gift of contentment. Not complacency, but that rare jewel of contentment in Christ. Is this cheap grace? No. Is it boring grace? No. Is it the secular, self-centered 
sinfulness of the world? No. Do you see the difference? This is why distinctions have to be made. The world says, which is not Christianity, this is how I am. God is gracious. You're not, Christians. God accepts me as I am, so I will remain as I am. That's not Christianity. God does not accept us the way we are. God accepts us despite the way we are. He receives us only in Christ and for Christ's sake. And he doesn't mean to leave us the way he found us, but to transform us more into the image of his son. That's Ferguson. There's a lot there to ponder. When we taste this goodness of God, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Paul says, the love of Christ controls us. We love him as he trains us for godliness, to be upright and self-controlled, Titus 2, because he first loved us. What does this mean for how we serve the Lord? Look at the third question again. Matthew 20, verse 15. Do you begrudge my generosity? Or, here's the literal interpretation. Is your eye evil or envious because I am good? An evil eye is a jealous eye. It resents what someone else has. The problem for the full-day workers, according to the master, is not his fairness as they've interpreted it, but his extravagant generosity to those that only worked one hour. That's what they're upset about. They have an evil eye. They're incensed. And here's how this applies to us, Emmaus Road. The danger of serving the Lord and doing it out of pride. Especially for pastors, elders, Anyone who's serving the Lord, deacons, all of us, men and women serving God. Serving God for the praise of others. Serving God and looking down on others who aren't doing what we think they should do. Comparing ourselves, boasting over them. God always acts with complete integrity, even when he doesn't do what we want him to do. He gave those that came at 6 a.m. everything he promised. But what happened? Their eyes were evil. They didn't look at their master. They looked around. They compared. And they grumbled. In our day, this is so easy. Social media makes it really easy. Jealousy and envy from the heart just come out. I'm not as bad as him. I didn't do what she did. Much like the prodigal son. Aren't there a lot of parallels here? That older brother, that self-righteous Brother, I serve God. I deserve more. They did not serve the Lord with joy, but as mercenaries. No grace, no love for God. That's what Peter is saying. Look at all I did. The heart of pride comes out in the tongue. The words of pride come from the heart. It's dangerous. It's lurking in our hearts. With this attitude many may finally be last in the kingdom. See what Jesus says there? That's what this is ultimately looking at, the kingdom of heaven. God saves people at different stages of life. 
So praise God if you don't know a day that you didn't believe. Like Timothy or John the Baptist who the Spirit worked on in his mother's womb. Some came to faith in Christ at noon. The Apostle Paul. Or at 3 p.m., C.S. Lewis. Or at 5.59 p.m. and 59 seconds, the thief on the cross. Right before the whistle blows for the day. Each of them receives the same blood of Christ. Each of them receives the same forgiveness and righteousness of Christ. But we can think, well, this is my church. I've been here since 6 a.m. I didn't just come around at 5 o'clock. Why don't you do what I'm doing? Unfair. I worked harder. I deserve better. Beloved, we deserve more than what? Eternal life? That's what God gives us graciously. This corrects those who think God owes them. Beloved, keep on focusing on Jesus. Many who are first will be last. Many who are last will be first. Verse 30 of chapter 19. doesn't say all. We don't want to overreach here, right? Many. Many who begin well in the Christian life don't end well. They don't finish well. They sprint. They burn out. They turn away from Jesus. The rich young ruler. I won't do that. But not all. Beloved, especially children of the covenant, don't wait to serve God. Don't say, well, I'll become a Christian after college. I'll serve God when I have time. Don't wait. Our life is a vapor. We sang about that. James 4 teaches it. Serve the Lord now, not to get something, to say God owes me, but out of joy and gratitude to serve our God who loves us. Emmaus Road, family of God, a warning here against clickishness. Welcome those who are new, not only with a high, but a genuine come to my home for dinner. I know many of you do this. The Minnesota nice way is, okay, hi, and I won't ever talk to you again. Hi, but don't pretend to become in with my friends or my family. Beloved, we are the family of God. Every age, every tribe, every tongue, every nation who are in Christ by faith. Let's practice, by the grace of God, hospitality. Emmaus Road is a place for those who have been broken by sin, by the world, and by gospel-less churches. Emmaus Road is a place to be pointed to Christ, for healing, to be known and loved, for people to come along each other side by side as you do. It's a place where the gospel is at work by the Spirit, where you can hear Christ and his blood shed for you Sunday after Sunday, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. A place where we who have been forgiven much, love much, Beloved, people don't fall out of love. They fall out of forgiveness usually. Let's pray that we would practice that. Taking off the fairness goggles. Stop thinking about ourselves and the lens and the goggles of God's grace, his saving grace, his justifying grace, his sanctifying grace, his preserving, persevering grace. That's the hinge. Grace alone is the hinge. 
to keep the doors of self-righteousness nailed shut. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Look to him. Rest in him. Trust him. Rejoice in him. We are saved indeed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to live as a church family together, not silos individually, corporally, to the glory of God alone. Amen. We hear of God's grace. We sing of God's amazing grace. Let's stand. Page 8, verses 1, 2, and 3.